Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Chris Verone dropping by the studio here in New York, Strategus partner and head of technical strategy. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, John. Can that good news, that trade truce, extend to some kind of lasting peace? I think we're going to let the markets be the judge of that. Uh, you know, we care about price action, the market's interpretation of these events. And I just think it's important to emphasize we're about 8% off the lows from uh, last week. If you look at historical rallies and downtrends, uh, up about 15 is your typical rally. So maybe we're halfway there. I think that 2650, maybe 2700 level is going to be the first real test for this market in terms of how durable this advance is. Now, the question I have, and I think what we're struggling with, if a month from now or two months from now, we've had some positive resolution to the China news, yet the market's back on the lows, what will the excuse be that time or next time? And yeah. that's the tricky question. So how do you characterize the price action of the last couple of days? Because for me, there's a big difference between pricing out near-term recession risk and pricing in the all-clear. Yeah, and I think um, if you look kind of at some of the internals, uh, there have certainly been some impressive days, uh, namely Friday. The internals were the best we've seen since uh, about seven or eight years. Um, but more importantly, I think our big test is what do the leadership characteristics around this move look like? Do we get the important groups like industrials and semis involved? Uh, semis decent so far, industrials not so much. So there is, I think, a jury is still out type attitude in terms of how we evaluate this move. And quite clearly, China at the epicenter of this. And I don't mean the trade talks, I just mean the general slowdown in the economy. We had Apple last mm. week, Samsung overnight. It doesn't look great right now for tech, does it? Not that specific I think it tech sector. Yeah, I think it depends where you look. Um, EM tech is so concentrated in names like Samsung, Taiwan Semi, Alibaba, Tencent. Those have clearly been among the more weaker names, not just recently, but for the better part of the last six or 12 months. When you look domestically, small and mid-cap software has actually been quite good. So there's this dichotomy between yeah. global tech and U.S.-centric domestic tech. And I think it's important we highlight yeah. that. Yeah. VetBill wanted me to ask you a question, my dog. Everyone out there, including VetBill, owns Amazon, owns Apple, et cetera, et cetera. What do you do with these big trophy stocks of another time and place? I think if we consider the big ones, the Facebooks, the Amazons, I love the Apples, and Microsoft. Seriously, Chris, I've got so much respect for you. Carry on. <laughs> the question I have is: these corrective phases, these drawdowns, are typically complete when the best stocks have gone down. Have finally gone down. Microsoft has been the best of the best of the best for the better part of the last four or five years. Ultimately, does that one need to get hit harder before this is all said and done? I think that is the key bellwether as we move through the first couple months of uh, this year. Why did the hedge funds go down so badly? Do they, did the hedge fund guys that got hammered, do they talk to people like you? I wish they talked to Is it your more. fault? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, listen, I think at the end of the day, the underperformance from the hedge fund community has been consistent with the radical activist central bank policies we've seen over the last 10 years. So you years. take it's a more macro view. I, I, I do. I think it's difficult for active managers to outperform. Yeah, but when you go into some fancy pants 2 and 20 hedge fund and you say Apple's broken down, the setup's terrible, blah, 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 Chris own trend talk, 
what do they do? Throw you out of the office? I think one of the ironies uh, about the hedge fund community, particularly um, kind of the legendary hedge fund investors that we know, they are very, very price sensitive, very, very trend sensitive, very technical sensitive. So they're very they use technical analysis. And uh, what you. I've always found is our work, the reception of it is often best in those places. If you look at um, some of the legendary hedge fund investors, they are have been price watchers first before they shape okay. their fundamental view. What you just heard there, folks, there's nothing else you need to hear in 2019 if you're part of Global Wall Street. There's all this media talk about guys and cosmic vision and all that. And Chris, they're following the same price charts. I learned this from a guy named Gene Peroni a million years ago. Everybody ends up following the X and O's, a point and figure, or the trend-based stuff that you do. We think of it very simple. Price is simply a check on your fundamental view. Price either confirms your view of the world yeah. or it doesn't. And John, it's visceral. You do it with pencil and paper. So what's your fundamental view right now, Chris? Well, I, I, I don't care for the fundamental view. I care for the market's perception of other people's fundamental view. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, we've seen a pretty good rally uh, off the lows. What I've been a little less convinced by is some of the macro divergences that still exist. Uh, yield curve really hasn't steepened. Bond yields are up only modestly. Copper hasn't done much to impress us. So I think there are still uh, some big question marks out there before we really embrace this. I think when volatility is high, there's always this inclination to explore the extremes. And the extremes that we were exploring over the last couple of weeks was the prospect of a recession. The base case for most economists is just a return to trend growth. If I could push back on one, on one point you made Please there, do. John. Um, volatility feels extreme relative to maybe the last year or two. Uh, but if you look at the spread of markets in 2018, the high versus the low, we were basically at the 100-year average. Yeah. There well, was I nothing extreme. I should emphasize it was extreme relative to extreme 2017. Relative to 2017 but but right? I guess anything would be. So I think we, uh, you know, there's this term that was used, the new normal over the last 10 plus years, right? I think we have transitioned into the old normal. And the old normal is simply an environment where the range of outcomes is probably wider. Uh, it's an environment where cyclical stocks correct from time to time. I think people forget, even the 1990s, the greatest bull market in tech ever, semiconductors had 11 20% drawdowns over that 10-year period. Cyclical stocks, correct. We need to remember that. Chris Ferrone, great to catch up with you this morning. Good morning and Happy New Year to you, Strategist Partners. Really Head good. Of, uh, technical strategy, when do we stop saying Happy New Year? When does that stop? Uh, it's End like, of this it's week, like next week. What do they say? Next happy week, Friday? Chris, next, week. next week. I hate Happy Friday. You hate Happy Friday. I hate Happy. Why just, do you hate just, Happy let's get Friday? Onto it. I don't like it. I like Happy Monday. Happy you and I Monday. get to come in here and battle with each happy other. Happy Monday exists. We welcome John Tucker for the first time in the we studios do. in 2019. He was with me yesterday. Was he with thanks, you yesterday? Thanks for catching <laughs> up. <laughs> hey, where was Tom? Oh, no. Was, I was with Eurasia Group. Eurasia 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 group. Yeah, I must tell you, I, I took the tree down to the decorations. So, yeah. Did you? Mine is still It's up. over. Yeah. No more Happy New Year. My uh, Mrs. Keene said, you're taking the tree down today because Vet Bill thinks it's a bush. <laughs> ow, ow. Has, so has Vet Bill been peeing in the corner of the room? No, not yet, but we're ready to, the tree's a little, <laughs> little crisp. It's become a bit of a fire hazard. Yes, we would say that. Uh, as uh, Well, John, what are you looking at today? I, I'm the president's teacher, and I thought Marty Schenker was absolutely brilliant yeah. on the mixture of things that we're supposed to see in an eight-minute speech. I love what Mike Allen said in Axios with Jonathan Swan today about the tension in the White House, about let's pick it up and go after the holidays. 
really interesting address coming later and yeah. I know we'll get a lot of attention something I'm paying a lot of attention to is just the slowdown in Europe just to get back to the market yes and the thank economy. you and the German data German was just industrial ugly. production was terrible and there was this hope that in the third quarter the slowdown in Germany and in Europe was temporary the spillover into 4Q does not look good industrial production was really soft Eurozone economic sentiment is really not great we've been sliding I think for 10 straight months it doesn't look great on the continent right Christopher, now Christopher on quickly here do you have a euro belief do you follow yeah, well, I, I think what's interesting here is this is how bear markets develop it starts with price first and then the fundamental data begins to confirm and a lot of these european markets peaked in the first quarter of 2018 yeah. 12 months ago and now the fundamental data is confirming what i can't reconcile is why the euro isn't weaker and something we always care about is price action how it responds to news what's it going to take to break euro down the fact that that john what have you happened, seen on that i guess we've seen it chris to a, to a greater extent i mean if you think about where we peaked at the start of 2018 we were in and around 125 we came down that. all the way yeah. down towards 110. I think yeah. the market, to your point, actually did a really, really good job of getting ahead of the slowdown in Europe. Price moved first, then the fundamentals are sort of backing this up. And relative to positioning coming into 19, very short and very pessimistic Euro and Euro-denominated yeah. assets seems to be the story. Great to catch up with you, Chris. Yes. What a joy yesterday to visit with Ian Bremmer at his offices, Eurasia Group, down on Fifth Avenue, farther down towards New York University, uh, and to look at the 10 risks, the top risks, I should say, for 2019 is put up by Eurasia Group. They've been remarkably prescient over the years, really signaling, John, uh, Germany and the challenges for Angela Merkel. They were way out front yeah. on that a couple of years ago. This year, within all the risks that they have, front and center, no surprise, is China. And what's great about Eurasia Group is they have people that look at China and focus on certain angles. Michael Herson joins us now, really with a focus on the economics of President Xi and China. Their basic equation, Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX, is a lot different than the United States, isn't it, Michael? Oh, it definitely is. You just look at um, what a large share investment is of China's economy. You know, that's north of 40 percent um, of GDP. And so that's a huge amount to be yeah. investing every year in real estate, in, in increased manufacturing capacity. And this is one of the challenges they face, especially as growth slows. But within investment that they have, there is how you place it on the nation's balance sheet and there's goodwill and there's bad will. How much bad will do they have booked on investment? Well, it's a it's a central question. It's tough to answer because Fair. you know the the data is not great. Um, you know, I think that um, bad debts are a significant share uh, on the on the balance sheet. I don't think that they're at the level that represent a flashing red light. Um, but it's no question this is a major challenge that China faces. Uh, it's a serious risk, and it's one reason why. Growth is slowing in, in you know in, in 2018 and 2019. It's because the leadership is aware of these financial risks and they don't want to exacerbate them. So the stimulus that China has 
announced and is implementing is less than many people expected. But I think it's really because those financial risks controlling those remain a priority for Beijing. So, Michael, on top of that is this trade dispute with the United States as well. And picking up on the risk that you guys have pointed out, the U.S.-China relationship, which Eurasia Group calls the most important bilateral relationship on the planet, I imagine most people listening to this program would agree with that. Your team is essentially saying something more fundamental has broken in the relationship between Washington and Beijing. What has broken? Well, that's right. It's it's the notion that we have entered in the last four or five months a new normal, a new era in the U.S.-China relationship. And it's a more tense, more politicized relationship across all of the different areas in which U.S. and China um, intersect. That's economics, it's technology, it's security. And these are pressures that have been building for a number of years. My view is that many of these same tensions we would be seeing even under a Hillary Clinton presidency. And that's partly because with China's rise, the U.S. and China are just competing against more fronts than ever before. But there's been a particular um, driver here with the Trump administration, which because it's less concerned about working with China on global issues like climate change or upholding the multilateral system, what we're left with is almost pure competition. And the Trump administration has signaled in recent months that even as the two sides work towards a ceasefire on tariffs, uh, the U.S. is determined to confront China on many of these other fronts. And so we are, um, you know, regardless of what happens with tariffs, we are headed for tension in a number of other areas. And these have real risks for, for businesses and for the global economy. But Michael, you've said something quite important. This goes beyond the electoral cycle. It goes beyond the Trump administration, which raises the real question as to whether this can be put back together again. Can it? I don't think so. I think we can have, you know, the, the level of tension will modulate. Let's just say with the new, um, if there is a new president in 2020, and if that's someone who is more concerned with pivoting back to issues like climate change, there will be more areas of, of uh, necessary cooperation with China. But in terms of the competition that's now at the center of the relationship, I don't think there's there's any going back. It's just a matter of how well the two countries can manage these and avoid competition spilling out in ways that uh, that are not helpful for either country. Some people conclude that the Chinese have actually gotten away with it for a long, long time without really strong confrontation from Washington. What are the positives that we can take out of the president's confrontation with the Chinese? What are the positives in all of this? I think many people, myself included, um, view it as necessary that the U.S. Yeah. shifted uh, its approach with China. And, and, you know, I think that conversation had started even before the Trump administration came into office. And in the run-up to the presidential election, I think the broad policy community in the U.S. had already said, look, it's time for a change. So I think that there are positives to the U.S. being willing to uh, to really call out China for um, activities that um, in which the U.S. previously pulled its punches. But there are risks to doing so. It has to be managed properly, because what we don't want to do is have China uh, absorb the narrative that the U.S. is simply out to contain China, and that there's yeah. no space for China to expand in the global system. That's that's something that we cannot control. I, I think it's an unrealistic goal. Right. And it fuels a narrative in China that's that's not productive in terms of what we're okay. trying to do. Well, 
So that's, well, th- that's, that's one of the risks. That's a linkage of the elites. I get that. That's a linkage of Beijing and maybe Shanghai and Hong Kong. How is all of this discussion, this discussion connected to the people of China? Is there a normal linkage to the people of China or is it an elite discussion and then completely removed as President Xi's domestic realities? Well, it's a great point. I think if you look at the people uh, in both countries, there's not necessarily a lot of animosity. Generally speaking, <clears throat> Americans and Chinese have positive views towards uh, towards each other. But the risk here is that um, depending on how the two countries manage this relationship, the, the everyday people are, well, certainly they're already impacted by the trade war. But even with some of these broader foreign policy tensions, I mean, you look in the U.S., at efforts to combat Chinese theft of intellectual property. Well, that's now coming out in the form of visa restrictions for Chinese students um, and, and similar measures. And that's the kind of thing that hurts people-to-people exchanges if it's not done right. It hurts the, the, the ability of the U.S. to attract top talent for innovation. So I'm not saying it's wrong to look at these issues, but um, again, this is where there needs to be a carefully developed strategy and a sense of proportion for the U.S., or we, we risk really shooting ourselves I, in the foot. Do we have a carefully developed strategy right now? I, uh, I, would, not, I would not say it's, it's carefully developed. I mean, certainly there are different – I think the issue is that there are many strategies within the administration. There are different voices right. and people who come at this from, from different issues. But what we have not seen is a cohesive well, effort – to really keep these uh, in line and coordinate you, across different different areas. One final question. Do you as a grizzled pro suggest that President Trump's unique Trump lateral strategy can be amended and modified by other members of his administration? I think I think that's quite difficult. I don't uh, I don't think we should have high expectations there. I think we need to expect the unexpected and to be prepared for yeah. surprises and a lack of a lack of coordination. I think that's just the reality of this administration. Michael Herson, thank you so much. Not enough time. Really quite good uh, with Eurasia Group and looking at China and the economics, uh, more the economic tilt of, of China. Bring in Mark Chandler, please. Chandler grew up with this. I mean, Mark, you did a great book on the social astronomy of America as well. Give us your Sears story quickly, Mark Chandler. End of an era. Uh, Internet changes everything. Amazon is a monopoly. How's that in a uh, Twitter soundbite? That's good. We like that. That is a Twitter soundbite. I don't know. If if we carry on getting him to talk about it, he might get in trouble. He's here to talk about foreign exchange. With Bannockburn, why don't you start us off on foreign exchange? The weakness we've seen in the last couple of days, Mark, do you see that as some kind of inflection point for the U.S. dollar after a year of strength? I don't know. I think it's a bit early to say this. I mean, I think that what happened is, you know, the U.S. is trying to raise uh, more than $150 billion this week selling bills and bonds. And with the drop in yields and a strong dollar, something's got to give. And so I think that uh, what we're seeing is a dollar weakening. Yields rising a little bit, but we're still stuck in this range. You know, last week we, we did the whole range in the euro, 113 to 115. Uh, dollar yen was a big move but, uh, with that flash crash, but other currencies like the Canadian dollar, the Aussie, which were hit by that flash crash as well, have completely rebounded. 
Mark, let's talk about the unique difficulties of 2019. 2017 was really interesting because we had this big consensus view that the dollar was going to strengthen, then it weakened. 2018 was the total opposite of that. 2019 just feels so much more nuanced. What is uniquely different about 2019 in the FX market this year, Mark? Well, I suppose that if you, like most people would probably say that the most, the unique thing this year is that the major central banks net-net are shrinking their balance sheets. So this is the fact that even the U.S. is shrinking its balance sheet, uh, which is uh, last year was offset by the BOJ and the ECB. Now the ECB is done buying and the BOJ has, has pulled back the extent that it's buying. And so I think that a lot of people are concerned that maybe since 09 or 10, that the QE has fluffed up asset prices. And now that QE in aggregate is being uh, unwound or at least uh, at least stalling, uh, that now we're seeing like the asset prices filter through. So I, I think that's one thing. The other thing I think is the, uh, uh, the driver is the uh, divergence, a renewed divergence. Look yeah. what happened today. German factory orders slumped. And this is after the German economy contracted in Q3. It's possible that they contracted in Q4 as well. And the, B, the Japanese, which contracted in Q3, are having a very, say, a lukewarm type of recovery. And the U.S., despite the slowdown, remember, we're slowing down from 4.2% in Q2. It feels horrible, but all we're doing is going to trend, which is about half that piece. Oh, we're going to trend, but what's the opportunity out there? I mean, I, I, John and I have talked about this. Is it a year where I can make big figures in 40? Well, forget about a year. Is it a quarter where I can make big figures in a foreign exchange trade, or is it just going to be range-bound in a, a mess and a jumble, Mark Chandler? Yeah, I hear you, Tom. I think that it will be a mess and a jumble here in Q1 because we have a lot of things coming to an end at the end of Q1, early Q2. And by this, I mean the U.S. trade talks with China. We've got like an early March deadline. April, the U.S. exemptions to the Iranian embargo come to an end. And then in May, we have the European parliamentary election. So I think in here in the first quarter, we get a little bit more dollar weakness. But then we come back within this range and we stay there until we get a clearer picture on the trajectory of trade and U.S. policy. So, Mark, a lot of people keep bringing up the European parliamentary elections. What is important about the parliamentary elections, not just for the politics, but for the market? Yeah, so I think that uh, why, it's, why it's important for the markets is that this is it's not just the European parliamentary elections, but what the European parliamentary elections will allow happen is for a new European Commission. And this will set the general thrust of European policy going forward. And I'm talking about integration. You know, many people still think, even though many people are, are bullish to Euro this year, many people, I think, underlying a cyclical bounce in the Euro are, are concerned about this, the ongoing, the ever never-ending story of monetary union without fiscal union. And I think that uh, what's interesting, I think, this year is that Germany, it could be Germany's turn to head up this central bank. Draghi's turn ends in October. You've had uh, a Dutch, excuse me, uh, uh, you've had uh, a Dutch, you've had a French. Uh, it's a German's turn, it would seem like, after the Italian turn. And yet uh, Merkel seems to be playing her cards close to her vest, not really supporting Weidmann, seeming to realize that Germany's ability to protect itself, its own interests, and to further its vision of Europe is not going to be done at the ECB, but at the European Commission level. And Europe is in the middle of this huge transition that affects a whole range of offices. And so I think the European parliamentary elections are just this uh, uh, sort of a catch-all phrase 
for this big transition that's taking place in European leadership. The idea, though, that we would have a change of leadership at the ECB that went towards the Bundesbank president, Jens Weidmann, I think was something people thought would happen maybe 12 months ago. Most people, Mark, have come around to the idea that it will not be the head of the Bundesbank running the ECB, that that just will not be tolerated from many individuals across Europe. I don't know about tolerated. I think that uh, maybe Weidmann... Well, it won't is, be supported uh, then, Mark. Let's use that word. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I think that uh, if Germany really wanted to do that, I think they could force their will on getting the Bundesbank president uh, to be the next ECB president. But the, here's the problem with that, is that there is a woman who's from Germany who's on the board. She's the only woman on the executive board. And if Weidmann becomes the, the ECB president, wow. she would have to step down. And so, but in big picture sense, I think that the future Germany is, uh, their interests are not going to be in the ECB, which is uh, normalizing monetary policy ostensibly. Okay, how do I I make money at this if not lose money? I I mean, what euro pair is most attractive to Mark Chandler? Right now, I think that euro sterling is very attractive because I think that we're still, it's partly because of the Brexit story. But I'm looking at the euro, though, to still, I mean, at the end of the day, the euro is still a, I mean, I think that what's going to happen is we're going to have an ECB easing move here in the first half of the year where they give a new long-term, uh, what we'd call a targeted long-term refinancing operation, the TLTRO. And I think that will weaken the euro in the second quarter. So I'm looking to, 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 to your point, Tom, I'd say take advantage of a rally in the euro above the recent range, which is above 115, to sell it uh, for the move down when the ECB eases policy. Hey, Mark, great to catch up with you. Yeah, fascinating. Mark Chandler, I, I no Bannockburn Global of, Forex Chief Market Strategist. I had no idea how they like picked the next Draghi, you know, like the complexities of it. Yeah, national leadership. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and people take it like, you wonder if they go to a second or third distant nation this Yeah, time in, in and around the same time that the yeah. big spots at the European Commission open up, which is why Chancellor Merkel has got her eye on that and perhaps not the European Central Bank. You know the movie The Big Short, and any other movies maybe on the history of Wall Street, some of them swarmy and light entertainment. The real issue, Pim Fox, is the issue of courage going back to the 70s on the West Coast, far, far away from old stodgy companies like the J.P. Morgan Company. Oh, I'm thinking or the Chase and Men. Quist, That's are we? Be Hambrecht and Quist. Yes. Pim, you're a pro, you know it. Apple computer, Genentech, Adobe... When they were done with that, they did okay with Netscape MP3 and a small company that sold books up in Seattle. They were, of course, taken out, and William Hambrecht uh, deserved every penny of it from the J.P. Morgan Company yeah, and Chase, George Quist. Uh, together, George Quist as well. And all of that comes down to the detrius of a little small healthcare confab that PIM has gotten a little bit bigger. Yeah, it has gotten a little bit bigger. This is the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. It began uh, yesterday in uh, San Francisco, and our own Taylor Riggs is there. Taylor, thank you very much for being with us. Good morning. The, you know, I don't even know where you really want to start. I mean, we could talk about Sage and and their postpartum depression uh, information, but I'm wondering whether the government shutdown is at all a topic at the conference because there are a couple deals that need to get done, and with the government shutdown, that could complicate things. 
Yeah, you know, we're not hearing too much about the shutdown, Tim. It's really more about drug pricing and ACA repeal. And that's something I think that analysts and investors are really concerned about with drug pricing. You're getting, I think, what is really fueling a lot of these M&A deals. Is people are a little bit concerned about the Trump administration coming out and tweeting about drug pricing pressures and some of these rising health care costs. ACA repeal is interesting. You're actually not. I asked the CEO yesterday, he kind of laughed at me, and he said, no, that's actually legally that we're not really concerned. Of course, there's some contingency plans in place, but really not something that we're really preparing for. So definitely, I think for the first time in a few years, you're having government and politics really start to play a role, start of driving some of the conversations that we're hearing, at least in the hallways from, from what I'm gathering. One of the participants uh, was the chief executive of Wealthcare Health Plans. This is Ken Burdick. And in a session yesterday, I believe he was talking about how they're focused on expanding what they describe as managed Medicaid, right? They say they want to expand, obviously, in Florida and other states. But he said that the costs of healthcare just getting so prohibitive, and he believes that managed Medicaid is the solution as opposed to cutting people off of those roles. Yeah, well, we spoke with the CEO yesterday who was running one of the top um, exchanges and he's looking at a North Carolina bid, he's looking at four other state exchanges. Centene, they're one of the few profitable companies actually that are able to be profitable on ACA. And that's an interesting um, conversation when we talk about Medicaid and Medicare, of course, because it's just generally rising costs. I haven't heard yet, Pim. I can't wait to hear what yeah. these companies start to say about Gavin Newsom. He's the new California governor that took over yesterday. He wants to do a single-payer plan with Medicaid and Medi-Cal over out here in California. I haven't heard conversations about that yet, but he's firmly going up against the Trump administration yeah. and, and taking them on head-on. Taylor, there's a culture, there's a fabric to San Francisco. It's something you know uh, well. And part of that is the enthusiasm of the initial public offering to the thousands of people at this ginormous conference, is that all old news? Is the days of IPO and red herrings and road shows, is that all gone because everybody's going to do private transactions with the huge pools of capital that are out there? Yeah, we're getting definitely when we talk about M&A, I asked a CEO yesterday, 10X Genomics, and they're more of a DNA um, company. And I asked him, what is his exit strategy? Of course, IPO is always what you want as a CEO. And uh, they're really not thinking about that. I mean, when we talk to other CEOs of biotechnology companies like Sage Therapeutics, um, they're looking perhaps to be bought out by bigger companies. Yeah. You get a lot of these big pharma companies that are a little bit more concerned about expenses, don't have the capabilities for R&D. You see a smaller biotech company like a Sage Therapeutics, maybe not. Well, is that, is that, well, not to interrupt, but this is important. Is that going on in San Francisco at this conference after Celgene, after what we saw with Eli Lilly yesterday? Is, is, is there everybody frothed up about cancer stocks and we got to buy, buy, buy? Huge conversations, huge conversations because you have the pressure from drug pricing and generics and the pipeline that these biotech companies have. And we heard from GlaxoSmithKline, and one of the reasons that they done the Tesoro deal is there was a pipeline of drugs that had already been approved. 
that now they don't have to go and reinvest in their own R&D to bring drugs online. So there's huge conversations about M&A. And it's interesting when we talk about some of these big, big, you know, you think of the big BMS, Celgene deal, $72 billion versus some of these smaller bolt-on acquisitions. More and more we're hearing it actually might be some of these more smaller bolt-on acquisitions, like the Loxo deal for $8 billion. Yeah, the Lilly deal. Yeah. Right, where, where you sort of come in and well, bring these on. And we spoke with Lisa Gill, the senior equity analyst over at, at J.P. Morgan, of course. Um, and she really said it'll be sort of these specialty add-ons that will be driving right. M&A this very, year. Very quickly here. I, I, I mean, I, you know the Cliff House. I mean, you've eaten out at the Cliff House like 472 <laughs> times. Is it like CFOs going off the cliff? Are they lemmings going off the cliff after a drink at the Cliff House? <laughs> no, they're having fun here. I will say oh, really? it's 6.30 in the morning, and uh, we haven't seen Jamie Dimon yet roaming the halls, but uh, we're seeing a lot of CEOs start to show up. I think the consumer is top of mind with rising healthcare costs. You're yeah. seeing the consumer really the theme of the conference with the CBS Aetna deal. We'll be speaking with the CBS CEO and talking about how right. to make the consumer, as they're more engaged, they take better care of themselves. M&A, of course, is a key driver. I think generics, that's why you're seeing some of these M&A deals with some of these biotech companies who have drugs already in the pipeline and big R&D budgets uh, because yeah. gen- the threat of generics is, is something that CEOs are contending with. Taylor, the Cliff House. I, I, I highly, if you haven't been there, Taylor, before, I highly recommend it. Sitting here after house. the Cliff House. All right. There are four, you know, there are about over 450 companies presenting over yeah. 9,000 attendees at yeah. the JP Morgan Health. Taylor Conference Riggs, thank you so much. In San Francisco. And, uh, uh, enjoy the Cliff House sunset as well. What a tough life, you know. Yeah. It's San a, Francisco, not so bad. It's, 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 it's like different than the mark. I mean, you, you know, the the mark happens there. yeah well that's at the top right that's the very, at the top yeah it's like all the memories of world war ii and all well that, you know as well thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.